all of Israel was standing outside the gate ready to get into the stadium. That was a given because inside the stadium was joy and excellence and and heaven. Outside of the stadium was dull, tedious, boring, a slow dying one day at a time. But inside was joy forever. So just buy a ticket and walk in, right? Wrong. The only way to get in was to earn your interest. It isn't purchased, it's earned. And and to get in the gate is through merit, through difficult religious practices, by saying the right prayers, by offering the right sacrifices, by keeping the Sabbath, by observing the festivals, by obeying the laws, by uh, giving alms. And eventually you'll win a seat, maybe. But you can never be totally sure that your efforts were enough. And so you'll just keep striving and striving. Well, that was the religious game of Jesus' day. And it was uh, as if all of Israel was lined up at the gates of the stadium of, of heaven, trying to get in, just hoping that they would be merited a mission through uh, the executive stadium club entrance. Even though this is not how God intended it to be, this is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day had turned it into. And Jesus shows up, he whistles to the crowd and says, guys, that's not the way in. The entrance is really over here where the cheap seat and the general seating is. And and come on, I'm opening the gates up and everyone is welcome and there's enough seats for everyone. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people in Jesus' day were stunned at his words. Did our ears deceive ourselves? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I thought it was blessed are the rich in religion. This is impossible. I thought it was blessed are the season ticket holders, uh, for theirs is the reserved seats. I thought it was blessed are the skybox executives, for theirs is the full buffet. I thought it was blessed are the press, for they get access to the locker room. Thought as blessed are the wives of the players, for theirs is all the money. <laughs> I thought as blessed is the celebrity fans, for they get the free TV time. Jesus says, nope. Blessed are the beer-bellied, shirtless cheeseheads who can't really afford to be here anyway. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these With similarly shocking words, Jesus opens up his sermon on the mount, his manifesto for living in the kingdom of heaven. And in this brilliant message, Jesus communicates with captivating freshness and stunning simplicity. He quotes no rabbis, no religious leaders, no respected authors. He just cuts to the chase and explains what it really looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. And surprisingly, the crowd is amazed because they realize that he is describing a reality that they really are hoping for, a grace-filled and God-approved life. This is the good life that Jesus was opening, not just to the religious elite, but to everyone. Friends, we're in the series going through the gospel of Matthew 
And Jesus has been teaching us and showing us what it means and what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven, to live under God's authority, to live on earth as it is in heaven. He is teaching us how to be salt and how to be light. We saw that that starts with repentance. And then we saw how Jesus faced and overcame some sin and temptation by knowing and using God's word. And then last week we saw that if we accept Jesus's invitation to come and follow him, that he would change our beliefs and our attitudes and our actions. He will change our heads and our hearts and our hands. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men is Jesus's invite. So today, we are going to begin to unpack Jesus' manifesto for kingdom living. And we're going to see four Godward qualities that are present in the lives and in the lives of, of people who are living in the kingdom of God. And that is humility, repentance, meekness, and a hunger for the things of God. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me over to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. Please grab one as a gift from us. We would love to give that to you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. And if you're looking for Matthew, it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. It's the first book of the New Testament. About two-thirds of the way through if you're looking for it. And we're going to be there in verse 3 in just a moment. I love what N.T. Wright says about these verses that we're getting ready to study. He says this, The worst mistake that we can make about these famous and stunning passages is to see them as a list of rules that we've got to try hard to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to and, uh, to be meek and so on. It isn't. It's a royal announcement that God is turning the world upside down, or rather, he's turning it right way up. So as you're turning to Matthew 5, I just remind you a little bit of what we saw last week. So after calling Andrew and, and Peter and James and John to come and follow him, Jesus goes throughout all the area and continues to preach about the kingdom of heaven. And then he shows his power and his authority by healing the sickness of people and casting out demons. And, and word about Jesus begins to spread all over the area. And so Jesus sees these large crowds of people that are coming, and so he decides to go up on the side of this mountain, and he sits down, and he begins to teach them with these words found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pause there for just a moment. Guys, we're going to take our time going through these Beatitudes because we're going to cover three verses today, but in these three verses is a lot to unpack. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor of spirit, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus opens up his Sermon on the Mount by answering a question, a question that all of his listeners wanted to know. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be approved by God? What does it mean to live lives that are pleasing to God? And so Jesus tells them, blessed are the poor in spirit. People want to know how we can live lives to please God. In fact, that's one of the values that we have here as Journey Church, as a church. We say that we want to live lives that are pleasing to God. 
that every day we joyfully give God the best of everything that we are and everything that we have, that we are transformed by who Jesus is and what he has done. It's one of our core values as a church, that we want to live lives that are pleasing to God. And really, that's at the center of who we are as people. I love what Pascal says. He says that there is a God-shaped hole in the center of everyone's heart that only God can fill. And, and friends, we will try to fill that with all kinds of other things and we will come up wanting until we begin to fill it with God and the things of God. So, so Jesus answers this question. What does it mean to be approved by God, to be blessed by God, to, to live lives that are pleasing to God? But the answer isn't exactly what we would think. See, Jesus says that God's approval is not earned by religious performance. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' time were trying to tell everyone. Hey, you got to do these things and mark off these things and say these prayers and go to these festivals and you got to do all these things right and keep the Sabbath and, and everything. But Jesus says, look, it's not, it's not about religious performance, but it's found in acknowledging our helplessness. That's what gets God's approval. It's not by religious performance, but it's about acknowledging that we need God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to say, I have nothing. I am worthless. I am empty without God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God just wants us to need him. Not because God is needy, in and of himself. Not because he needs to be needed, but because we actually do need God. God has so arranged the universe that it depends on his constant care. He just wants us to see this truth and to respond accordingly. We entered this blessed state when we realize that our life and our very breath and everything that we are and everything that we have is completely dependent on God. We cannot live without him. I love the way that one artist, his name is Odd Thomas. Maybe it was me, I don't know. Um, but he writes this song called Lofty. He says, it's evident in creation that God is the primary cause, the origin of all scientific laws. Everything else is secondary. The very breath that comes from lungs is caused by the fact that God is involved. This is what being poverty, being poor in spirit looks like. It looks like saying, God, I am fully dependent on you. I can't do anything on my own. This is the first step to learning to live lives that are pleasing to God is to humble ourselves and realize that we can't do it without him. Now, this isn't the destination, but this is the stepping off point, the departure point. From here, what we're going to see over the next couple of verses is some progressive steps to stairways of living in the kingdom of heaven. And each one, from being poor in spirit to mourning to meekness to, uh, to hungering and thirsting for righteousness and so on, builds on the other. And when all eight of these blessings or beatitudes are in place in our lives, then we begin to see this path that God lays out for us and desires for us to walk on. But it starts with us being poor in spirit, with us saying, God, I need you. I can't do this myself. 
It starts with a poverty of spirit, with humility, with us humbling ourselves, saying, God, I need you, which leads us then to this natural next step to mourning. Look at verse four. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. In the New Testament, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and what we're reading today is a translation from that original Greek language. There are nine words for the word to mourn, okay? Now, you know, in our language, we, we like are, are complicated on some things and, and too simplistic on others, right? The Greeks had multiple words for the word love. We use one. And we use it for everything. We say, I love pizza and I love my wife, right? We, we use it to describe everything, right? In Greek, there are nine words to talk about mourning. And Jesus uses the strongest of those nine here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. He describes this powerful, continuous expression of grief in the second beatitude. The kind of mourning that simply is beside itself in anguish, which then in my mind at least, raises the question, how in the world is this a blessed state? (laughs) How can Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? (laughs) Blessed are those who are beside themselves. Well, forgiveness carries great comfort after sin has been properly mourned. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not just talking about mourning in and of itself is a joyful and happy experience, but he's talking about mourning our sins. And when we properly mourn our sins, it yields great pleasure because we are able to taste the full benefit of God's grace. We cannot know the fullness of God's grace any other way until we properly mourn over our sins. And those of us who mourn over our sins then are comforted. So I want to give you three steps that we can take to properly mourn our sins. The first step is this. And you may say, Thomas, man, this is is simple. Yeah, it is. But it's difficult. (laughs) It's simple, but yet it's hard. The first step to properly mourn our sins is to take responsibility. This may be the hardest because I don't know if you're like me or not, but like, I, I struggle to say I was wrong. I, I, did, I, w- I was wrong about this. I did this wrong. I said this wrong. I struggle to take responsibility, but if we are going to properly mourn our sins, we first must take responsibility. Sin is nobody else's fault but our own. From the garden, we have been pointing fingers at everyone else. It's, it's your fault and your fault and her fault and their fault. But friends, the reality is your sin is your fault. And we will not properly mourn sin until we take responsibility for it. David gives us a, a great example of this. David's sin was very public. His sin with Bathsheba and then, then having Bathsheba's husband killed was very public knowledge in Israel. And just as public is his repentance. Now, David takes ownership of his sin, but if you know the story of David, he didn't take ownership of his sin until 
after the prophet Nathan came and confronted him and said, you are the man. And it's then that David finally properly mourns his sin. But we get to see this public confession of him taking responsibility. And so we can learn from his example. We find this in Psalm 51 in verse 3. David writes and he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, he's talking to God, this is his prayer. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified in your ju- when you judge. David finally owns his own sin and the blame belongs to him alone. Friends, if we are going to properly mourn our sins and find the comfort that forgiveness and grace bring, then we must take responsibility for our sins. We got to stop blaming them and him and her and those people over there. And we got to start blaming us. Friends, we cannot control anyone else. All we can do is control the person that looks in our mirror. That's us. So take responsibility for your sins. Say, I did it. And when we take responsibility, it leads us to our second step in learning to mourn properly, and that is to repent. To ask God for forgiveness. Friends, we can't properly ask God for forgiveness if we haven't first owned up to what we've done, right? We can't say, God, forgive me for this, honestly, truly, until we've owned up for it. But once we have owned up for it, then we must repent of those sins, that mourning for sin, asking God to forgive you. And then once we've asked God's forgiveness, this is a hard part too. We then must believe it. We must believe that God has forgiven us. God loves to forgive broken sinners like you and me. And once we've owned up to our sin, we, we've named it, we've identified the specific source, and we've confessed it to God and asked for his forgiveness, once we have mourned like that, we then need to trust that God is faithful and that he will forgive us. And then we can taste the comfort that follows. Blessed are those who mourn for their sins, for they will be comforted. We begin by standing before God empty. We have no righteousness of our own, no merits to offer. Our morality gauge is below E. Our covers are bare. Our accounts are in debt. We are poor in spirit, and that hurts. And we come to realize the damage that our sin has done, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us. And we acknowledge our pitiful condition is one of our own making. And that there's no one else to blame but us for our sins. And so we mourn our sins. We own it, we repent of it, and then we believe that Jesus is going to forgive us. And being in such a sad and empty state has a wonderful softening effect on our ego, doesn't it? When, when we are able to 
realize our full dependency on God, being poor in spirit, when we are able to properly mourn our sins and be honest with ourselves and honest with God about who we are and our mistakes and the things that we've done wrong, it has a wonderful way of softening our hearts and our egos. The old swagger melts away, our ego gets chopped down to size, our once proud hearts find nothing to glory in but in God, and we become meek and gentle. And Jesus says this in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven at this point is beginning to take root in our lives. In our humble state, we find ourselves ready to begin to do the things that God wants us to do. We begin to find ourselves doing things God's way and not our own way anymore. We no longer have to strive to to get ahead and to climb. The world is not ours to conquer, but it's ours to inherit. Humbly, we mourn our sin, our humility and our mourning of sin creates meekness. And then we get to experience the grace that ought to give us a sense of joy, no matter what disappointments life may bring to us. God has given us the kingdom and proclaimed us heirs to the earth. And so we don't have to try to win it, to earn it, to beat it to the ground. We can humbly inherit it. Peter says these words in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. The first half of these Beatitudes are Godward qualities. It's about us turning our hearts in the proper direction towards God and away from self. I love the way uh, Louis Giglio puts it in his book, I, am, I, uh, I Know I Am and I Know That I Am Not. Right? He talks about when we know truly who God is, that he is the great I am, we then are able to see that we are not, right? God is the center of the universe and we are not. These beatitudes help lead us to that. They help, be us, it begins with us being poor in spirit, us mourning our sins and thus becoming meek. They are us turning our hearts towards God. And when God is in his proper place as number one and the boss and the Lord, and everything in our life, then we can start to get ourselves in line. It begins with our relationship with God, being poor in spirit, recognizing that we have no merit before him. That naturally leads us to mourn for our sins, knowing our weaknesses. We grow more humble and more meek. Having no fullness of life in ourselves, no satisfaction in this world, we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We begin to hunger and thirst for the things of God. And that's what Jesus says in the next verse, in verse six. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How many of you, if your grandma was cooking a home-cooked meal, would say, nah, grandma, I'm good. <laughs> uh, Heather, your grandma must not cook. Yeah, poor granny, man. All right. All right, how many of you 
would say to a friend that says, hey, I want to go out and buy you dinner at your favorite restaurant tonight. It's on me. You don't have to do anything. Would say, eh, I'm good. How many of you would, if somebody made some fresh homemade cookies, would uh, say, no, you know what? I'm doing this thing now. I'm just not eating any cookies, right? If they were fresh, hot, warm, you'd probably take them on even if you're on a diet and cheat, wouldn't you, right? But friends, this is exactly what we do with God. He places a feast of righteousness before us and we politely decline because we've been filled on the affairs of the world. We say, nah, I'm good. I've had enough already. We, we come to worship on Sunday mornings, cold and detached, having filled on the world's fair the night before. Many of us give excuses for opportunities to serve others and to serve God because we are wore out from the workaholic week that we've had this week. How many Bibles go unread because our minds have been overstimulated by Facebook and TikTok and Netflix? We don't have time to consume the very word of God. I love what God tells his people Israel in Jeremiah 2 verse 13. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and... They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You know, it's easy for us to look at Israel and to see how they committed these sins, right? How, how they rejected God, they, they, forsake, they forsook him and, and as the spring of living water, and then they tried to get filled up on the world's fares, right? It's easy for us to see this in other people, but friends, we have committed the same sins, In other words, we're drinking up things which do not quench that deepest thirst. We are filling up on empty calories. And that's a formula for frustration and not for satisfaction in God. But this fourth beatitude is, it offers a remedy remedy to this. This fourth blessing about hungering and thirsting for righteousness This would have been a real punch in the face for Jesus' listeners that were sitting on that mountainside with him. These people knew physical hunger all too well. They lived hand to mouth. If there was a drought, they wouldn't eat. If the catch wasn't there or the market didn't sell, then they didn't have food to eat. They would have known hunger, physical hunger, all too well. And so for Jesus to suggest that hunger and thirst was a blessed situation— This would have definitely caught them off guard (laughs) because they knew hunger and thirst all too well. How many of you guys have ever heard of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of human need? All right, if you sat in psychology class or sociology class, you probably heard that. So, So Maslow said that humans need first to, to have their physical needs met before they can move on to their social and psychological needs, right? Like if they, if they aren't eating or, have, or being clothed, then, um, then, then they aren't going to be paying attention about the social needs, right? Well, Jesus kind of flips his pyramid up on his head, doesn't he? Jesus tells these peasants, don't worry about what you will eat and drink. Don't worry about what you wear, but seek first the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Chances are these people who heard Jesus' words first would always be poor peasants 
And so Jesus is trying to help them to learn to trust in God for their physical needs and devote themselves, their spiritual energies, to finding a different kind of satisfaction. And in fact, their poverty would help them to do this. Not being materially bound, anchored to this world, these people placed their hopes on the next world. They wanted to be right with God and to be filled with spiritual blessings for another kingdom. And this kind of fullness, though, is available not just to them, but it's available to us as well. And so as we close today, I want to give you just a couple of things that we can begin to put in our lives to help us to create a spiritual hunger and a spiritual desire for the things of God. And that first starts with us understanding what the goal of desires should be. Jesus wants us to fuel, to cultivate a spiritual desire, a hunger for righteousness. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He wants us to create this spiritual hunger and this spiritual thirst for righteousness. The goal of righteousness is primary, primarily a relational goal. The religious leaders of Jesus' day wanted to, to make it uh, a, a they wanted to make it a, a legal goal, a legal righteousness. Obey these rules, check off these boxes, do this and do that. But Jesus wants us to focus on the relational righteousness, hunger that comes from knowing God fully. That's why Isaiah says this, that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's why Paul says that everything that he counts as gain, he sees as lost so that he might know Christ. This should be the primary goal of our desire, that, that righteousness that comes not from our own merit and from our own ability, but a righteousness that comes from our relationship with Jesus. Now that then is going to spill over into our attitudes and our actions. We saw that last week when Jesus calls us. It starts with changing our beliefs and our attitudes and then our actions and in that order that Jesus transforms us. Here at Journey Church, we say it this way. We say that we trust that Jesus is all that we need and that we are being transformed by who he is and what he's done. Friends, the goal of transformation by who we're being, being transformed by who Jesus is and what he has done. And this transformation comes out of our relationship with Jesus. The goal of desire is a relational righteousness, a righteousness that comes from our relationship with Jesus and not comes from our own merit. And that leads us to, to really look at what the gratification, secondly, of desire is. Psalmist writes in Psalm 37, 4, says that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. John 10, 10 tells us that Jesus came to give us life to the full. And then here in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus promises that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they what? They will be filled. Friends, God wants to gratify our desires. Now, if we stop there, we can get in trouble, right? Because that's not where Scripture stops. 
God wants to gratify our desires so long as our desires are for him. And and this is the key to true gratification, to true satisfaction. So long as our desires are set on worldly things, we will always find them fleeting and incomplete. But God promises us that if our desires are on him, that we will always be filled. To the degree that we want God, we get him. The more that we want to know his love and his presence, the more of those things that he gives us. The goal of our desires is a relational righteousness. The gratification of our desires are the things of God. Here at Journey Church, we say it like this that we trust that Jesus is all that we need. Jesus is all that we need. And when our desire is for the things of God, we will grow to understand that even more, that Jesus is all that we need. So this is the goal of our desire. This is the gratification of our desire. But how do we cultivate our desires to be for the things of God? How do we cultivate our desires to be for righteousness, to be for the kingdom of heaven? Well, the beginning of desire starts this. It's a simple but difficult process, and it has two steps. First, to resist the draw of other things. In order for us to harbor hunger for God, we must forego the things that dole our desires. And guys, those things that dole our desires are not just sin. They are all kinds of things that distract us and that turn us away from the things of God. And so we must forego, we must resist that draw. And this is why fasting is such a critical spiritual discipline, because it makes us hungry. We saw just a few weeks ago when Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, we said that Jesus was physically empty, but he was spiritually full. And unfortunately, we too often are the opposite of that. We are physically full and spiritually empty. Fasting creates a hunger in us so that we are able to focus on God. Now, if you talk to you know, personal trainers and dietitians, they'll talk about fasting for health reasons, losing weight. That's not the type of fasting we're talking about. We're talking about stopping eating or putting away other things in order to focus on your relationship with God. If your goal of fasting is just to lose a couple pounds, that's not the fasting that we're talking about here. The fasting we're talking about is for us to, to, to hold off from eating or some other things in order to focus on a relationship with God. We create a hunger so that we can resist those other desires and focus on God through prayer and study. There are two resources that I want to share with you just really quick about fasting, if that's something that you are considering as a spiritual discipline. First, I encourage you to go a little bit further in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here in, in Matthew six sixteen, And he has a whole section about fasting and it comes in context with giving and serving and doing for others. Really, he addresses the heart 
of why we are fasting, right? Why are we are, are praying? Why we are giving? Uh, if we're doing it just to be seen by other people, then, then we need to check our hearts, right? So I encourage you to go and read those verses in, in Matthew 6. And then I also would encourage you to go and check out a book called Celebration of Disciplines by a guy named Richard Foster. And he has a whole chapter on fasting. He has a whole chapter on study and prayer and service and all kinds of other spiritual disciplines. It's an amazing book. Really encourage you to go do that if that's something that you are looking at. But if we are gonna begin to desire the things of God, we must start by resisting the things that dole our desires. And then secondly, we must redirect those desires towards God. We can't just neglect the hunger but we must also then consume scripture. We must also then consume worship and acts of service and ministry. We must fill our lives with new things. We must replace the uh, affections of the, of the old with the new and discover the satisfaction that righteousness brings. I love that any time that we see kind of a list of different things, especially in Paul's writing, like in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, hey, do away with these things, right? Sometimes we focus on those. We looked at those a couple weeks ago. We saw that, that Paul said, put to death the things of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, right? And he lists those out, sexual morality and so on, anger, rage, all of those different things. But what Paul does next is he doesn't just say stop doing those things, he doesn't just say, take those things off. He doesn't just say, put to death those things. But he says, put to death those things and replace them with these other things. He says, put on these things. And he gives us a list of God word qualities that we should have in our life. We can't just resist, but we also must then redirect our desires. We are beginning to unpack what it looks like for us to live in the kingdom of God, what it looks like to live lives that are pleasing to God, what it looks like to be blessed and approved by God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for their sins. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the things of God. We start to hunger and thirst for righteousness and for the desires of God. Friends, there are many of us that are here today who have been running our own way for way too long. We've been living life like we don't need God for way too long. We've been trying to fix the things that we have broken on our own. Let me tell you, you won't be able to. You can't do it. You're not strong enough, smart enough, wise enough, any of those things to do it. Your righteousness is, as Paul says, is filthiness. It's filthy rags. It's garbage. Because so is mine. So won't you come today? Won't you come and count all of that stuff as loss? And come and humble yourself before God and become poor of spirit. And express to him your need for him. Come and die to your sins, repenting of them, mourn your sins, and be joined with Jesus today in his death and his burial and resurrection through baptism. Come just as you are and allow Jesus to change you. Once you and I begin to receive God's mercy 
and his grace, it's going to grow our desire to be merciful to other people. We're going to finish the second half of these Beatitudes next week. And we're going to see that how these four Godward-facing attitudes and realities and blessings will begin to transform how we interact with other people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for their sins. Blessed are those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you that he turned the world right side up. And that he has shown us and taught us how we are to live in your kingdom, how we are to live under your authority, how we are to be salt and to be light. And Father, help us to realize that it starts with us acknowledging our desperate need for you, being poor in spirit. And that leads us to truly mourn over our sins so that we can find the comfort of your grace and your mercy. And that leads us to be even more meek and gentle. And now that we repented of those desires that were for the flesh and the desires for sin, Father, you want us to replace those with the desires of your kingdom for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We thank you for these building blocks that you are giving us to, to live out in your kingdom. And Father, if there are those that are here this morning that are listening who have never come to the end of themselves and never finally just come and said, I can't do this myself. I need you, God. Would you lead them? Would you humble them today? Would you lead them to express their need for you and repent of their sins and meet you in baptism? Would you lead them to give their lives to you, to come and die to themselves and die to their sins so that they can truly live as so many of us have. Father, we thank you for this reminder that you've given us as we gather together of communion that reminds us of the sacrifice that your son Jesus has made on our behalf to show us your love, to pour out your grace and your mercy on us. We thank you because we are so forgetful. So we thank you for this reminder of what your son Jesus has done to usher in your kingdom. Because God, we have nothing to offer you ourselves. We thank you that he has given his righteousness on our behalf because our righteousness is garbage. It's filthy rags. And so, Father, we come and we lay our pride and our egos down at your feet this morning and we humbly say, God, I need you. Every day. And Father, we ask all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.